Greetings, dear listeners. At this point, you should probably know that uh, this is part two of a mega conversation I had with Russ Roberts, the host of Econ Talk. And uh, it was so much fun, at least for the two of us, that we went really long. And so we figured we would break it up because it solved a lot of problems for me in terms of being able to record another episode from the road. So we're just going to pick it up from wherever we decided to pick it up from because I don't know where that is. You've done a couple, at least a couple shows on tipping. Yeah. And I think it's fascinating as an economic phenomenon, right? But I also think it's fascinating as a, as, as one of the best rebuttals to the notion of homo economicus, right? Particularly the model of, you know, you're never going to be in this airport again, <laughs> you know, never going to see this waitress again. So you're not trying to buy goodwill or anything like that. Right. You still leave a tip, right? Most of us do. There are people who probably don't. They're right. I assume there are people who cheat on the deal. But there are. There are more than enough people who do to sort of push back against the idea that we're purely economic creatures. Agreed. Right, right. So, but one of the things that I thought was sort of interesting was that, and this sort of relates to the pragmatism thing, is at one point you were talking about how it was fairly late in life you realized that people leave tips for the hotel maid. Yeah. Right. And um, and you ran through a bunch of the reasons, I can't recount them all here, why people do that or, you know, the issues involved in it. And I can't remember which guest that you had, but neither of you brought up the reason that drives me to be a good tipper. Okay. And I think that drives a lot of people to be a good tipper. Karma. Hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, just this idea, I particularly since I've been pretty fortunate in the last 10 years or so, my, you know, my, economic, my income has gone up. I'm, uh, I'm doing okay. I feel... It's the Jewish in me. It's the the Jewish guilt in me. I feel like I have no good reason to be stingy when it comes to things like tipping. And if I'm an if I'm an ass, the universe is going to punish me for it. And so, you, so you really do believe in homo economicus because you're saying that that if you don't tip, you're going to get punished. So you're, you're tipping because you, you view it as an investment and good karma down the road. No, that, but that's part of it. I guess I hadn't thought of those terms. I see it as more as part of this theme that's in my book about gratitude, right? Is yeah. that like um, it would just it's, – it's really chintzy of me to be a bad person about shortchanging someone who's working so hard in such a low prestige job. Um, and, and it gets to this thing that I think comes up a lot but really gets fleshed out on your podcast is the – um, you know, the role that religion, that these, or even superstition. Mm-hmm. I think play, that would, superstition would be what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To yeah. some extent. No, there's a, and a, there's a, there's a, a small K karma there you're talking about. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm also a big believer in the idea of being God-fearing, this idea that God is watching you, you know. I'll tell you, talk about a digression. When I first writing a, started writing my syndicated column, in the early days of the internet. And for some reason, this didn't happen when I was writing for National Review. It was only when I had the syndicated column. I would get, I mean, I always get a lot of anti-Semitic email. Nature of your last name. It, because, well, because, I mean, short of Shlomo Abramowitz, yeah. I've basically got the most Jewy name you can have. And know? I'm Jewish, but Russ Roberts, you know. Yeah, you can get any country club you want. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and I get this. So I always got a lot of anti-Semitic email. 
and I have Jewish journalist friends on the left who get a lot of anti-Semitic email. Mine would usually come from left-wingers. Theirs would usually come from right-wingers. It's kind of interesting, you know. But in the early days, partly out of stupidity, I would respond to a lot of it. And I would say things like, (laughs) you know, shame on you or God is watching you and that kind of stuff, right? And I'd say a half dozen times, maybe a little more, um, out of the hundreds of times I would do this, people would write back to me and say, and this is after saying horrible, you know, die in an oven kike kind of stuff, right? They would write back to me and say, oh, my God, I had no idea you were going to read that. I am so sorry. And they were mortified. And I, to this day, I can't quite figure what, what... the <laughs> And what it says about human nature, what it says about them. But it was just fascinating to me that they just they saw it. As putting a message in a bottle. It was catharsis for them. Yeah. It's like yelling at the guy in the car across the freeway with his lights on, with the windows up, your windows are up, and you curse him out. And, you know, if he came back and said, how dare you say that to me? He'd say, you weren't supposed to hear that. Right. But he did send you a letter. It's a little different. Yeah. It was (laughs) fascinating to me. Anyway, so I just – it's one of these things that I think – forget the superstition argument about tipping. I'm sure there's a religious – argument that you can make uh, on the same grounds, right? No, you can make an ethical argument without religion. Did you want to say something else? I'll mm. respond to it. No, I, I kind of lost myself in my tangent, so you can save me now. So it's just interesting. We're we're about uh, two blocks from DuPont Circle uh-huh. right now, taping this. Uh, I came in on the red line from suburban Maryland. I got off at DuPont Circle. I, came, I liked to get off at the Q Street exit. I like to walk by Kramer Books, which is a bookstore I happen to I have I like for a lot of reasons. Uh-huh. I've been going to it for a long time. And there's usually a homeless person yeah. begging, sometimes two on that block. And this morning I was aware that I had two singles in my wallet because mm-hmm. I have often just have a bunch of twenties for when I went to the ATM machine. Right. And I'm aware of the fact that when I'm around Dupont Circle, I'm going to get asked for money. Yeah. And I like to give them money. Yeah. So why do I like to give them money? And a lot of people respond. I wrote about this in my book, The Invisible Heart. But a lot of people say, oh, they're just going to waste it on alcohol or drugs. And my answer is if I'm giving somebody a dollar, I hope they enjoy the alcohol and the drugs. <laughs> they have a tough life. They, yeah. That's what they want. And I respect their desires. And I'm not their parent. And they're human beings. And I respect their sovereignty and autonomy. And um, even if they're drug addicts. Yeah. I think that's the right thing to do. But then people say, oh, you should, they should go to a shelter. You shouldn't even be encouraging it, which you are encouraging. And by the way, obviously that's true. But I do it because Jewish law says that when someone asks you, you should right. give. Now, if there were 20 of them, probably wouldn't give a dollar. Right. Uh, I, I dropped down to a quarter. I've been with people who given a panhandler a 20, which blew me away. Made yeah. me think, yeah, I guess maybe I'm not doing this right. But I think there's a lot of things in life like that where your natural impulse is to do something other than what w- would be the right thing to do. So I'll, I'll pick a couple. So you, you, you started us off with tipping. Uh-huh. I've now mentioned panhandling. Another example I would give is giving is visiting a friend in the hospital. Right. I hate hospitals. I think they're creepy so and, and they depress me they and they smell too. bad and they kill people. And they're not. I don't even like to – like when someone says, well, we'll have – we'll meet for lunch after. I'm thinking – you're, you think I'm going to touch the food and that – are you out yeah. of your mind? I don't even like – I'm exactly so, there. So that's embarrassing. But yeah. but 
I go visit people in the hospital because I think as a Jew, I'm religiously obligated. Not, And you can debate whether now I'm – whether I'm doing acting in my own self-interest or not because now I think that's what I'm supposed to do. And mm-hmm. let's put that to the side. I think religion encourages you to do those things. That's the way – that's the reason I do them. And and the tipping in the – either in the restaurant or the hotel for the, for the cleaning people is the same idea. It's that there's, there's an implicit contract. It's not a contract. So you're not really cheating. Right. But the implicit contract is the employer doesn't pay the full amount of the compensation that the person earns or deserves. We are expected to add to it through this donation. And we can cheat on that anytime we want. It's it's easy, especially when we're not coming back. We're not going to pay a price for it. I'm never going to stay in that hotel room again. I'm never going to come back to that that coffee shop on the road. The person is not going to see them. There's no cost, personal cost, direct cost. The only cost is my conscience and my if I think I'm if I'm a religious person, what I think is my obligation. And I think I think those are those are good things. I think that's fundamentally why we do a lot of these things, why we give blood, why we vote. They are not in our narrow self interest, and I think they're in our broader self interest. Being considerate, doing you know, just it, yeah. it, it covers the whole range of civilization. It, you know, the person who needs That's where your comfort. grandmother was right. Right, exactly. Yeah. The person who needs comfort on a on a on a Sunday, because you saw them the day before, and you saw they look kind of down, and you call them and say, "You how you doing? You want to get coffee?" It's not necessarily what you want to do. You have a thousand things you want to do on Sunday morning. You go get coffee. It's just it's the right thing to do. And 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 I think the world's a better place when we are motivated to do that for whatever reason, whether it's your so called conscience, your ethical uh, creed, your, your social pressure that right. that you're afraid someone would see you. No, this is a very Adam Smithian. People wouldn't the impartial observer. Yeah, the impartial spectator would, you know, an actual spectator would see you not tipping. Right. And the, and the hotel's a great example because no one's going to see that you didn't leave a dollar. Right. Should put it under the water glass, by the way. Right. Uh, or in a place where it's conspicuous. I leave a dollar a night. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking I'm gonna need to upgrade that a little bit. I think inflation and but, uh, yeah. So yeah, no. Um, and also, I think it's the only thing I'll add to that is. It doesn't have to be one reason, right? Sure. You know, they're mutually enforcing reasons. Yeah. It is a good thing that you're worried that people might see you be a crappy person, right? You know? yeah. But that doesn't have to be your only reason for doing it. You know, yeah. so there's an idea in Judaism called Morosayan, uh-huh. uh, which is the Ashkenazi yeshivish pronunciation, which means uh, someone's watching. Mm. And of course, there's God, but uh, sometimes it's just a person. Yeah, uh, there's there's a uh, I think it's a very interesting idea that – and it comes – Smith talks about it, that we reinforce our good habits through applauding good behavior by others and we discourage bad habits by showing our disapproval and that we, through our approval and disapproval, create a system of incentives that encourages civility. And I think that's deeply, deeply true. I think it's yeah. really important. Just this morning on Twitter, I was criticizing this young – uh, conservative activist woman who's sort of made famous by Kanye because she's going on Alex Jones's show. And Alex Jones, for people who don't know, is, by my lights, a really pernicious force in American life. He's a conspiracy theorist. He's the guy who said that Sandy Hook was a you know false flag operation. I mean, he's just not a good person. And and he monetizes his... And he makes life hard for people like you. Yeah. And somewhat even people like me because they say, oh, he's like him. And it's like, no, I'm not. Nothing <laughs> no, like him. But that's the world we live in right now where people get lumped together. That's right. And that's why and that's why it's important to 
make some bright lines. Yeah. And so I criticized her. I said, you shouldn't go on. And, you know, you get this, one of the laziest forms of argument. I thought conservatives believed in freedom, you know? <laughs> and, and I was like, she has every right to go on. Of course. I'm just, I have every right to say she shouldn't, yeah. you know? And it's a bad Judgment. idea for her. Judgment. Right. Is powerful and important. And it's, it's probably the most powerful and important aspect of civilization that we don't notice. We don't see it working. It's working all the time. It's in, when I say working, it's in play all the time. Because right. we live in a society. Yeah. Um, all right. So uh, we're going real long, but I, I, it would be a. Scan- I don't care. I'm enjoying every minute of this. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at the sound engineer. He is too. Uh, we're, we're, we are. Uh, I'm. Jack straight. is giddy. Yeah, he's giddy. Um, That's the word that was. I couldn't. It was on the tip of my tongue. Um, giddy. Uh, so uh, getting close to launch. The the <laughs> um on many of these podcast one of the things i like to geek out on is conservative slash libertarian intellectual history stuff went deep in the weeds on this with megan mccardle what we you've had on your your show and who i'm a huge fan of done with matt matt Conetti, do with a lot of people so it'd be insane when i have you in here for me to do the sort of explanatory part of this so i'll ask you this a two-part question one what does it mean to be an austrian economist and are you one that's the two parts. That's the two parts. So I have a question. So explain to explain to the listeners. I'm yeah. asking you to explain to the listeners what it is, and then- I will. And then then I have a question for you. Okay. And if we have time, yeah, yeah. continue with that. Otherwise, we'll close with this. So an Austrian economist, uh, the Austrian economists are people. The modern, the the 20th century Austrians are Hayek, Mises, and Schumpeter. They were preceded by people people like Karl Menger. Uh, in the 19th century that no one reads anymore or pays attention to, but certainly people pay attention to Hayek and to some extent Mises and to some extent Schumpeter. Uh, it's interesting to me that Hayek said the longest as the brightest uh, career path of those three. Mm-hmm. And if you had told people in, in 1990 that Hayek would still be in vogue and talked about, uh, I think they'd have been very surprised. Yeah. And the fact that Milton Friedman doesn't get invoked much in yeah. my experience in the last five or ten years is shocking to me. I think he'll have a recovery. But anyway, intellectual trends are, are interesting. But but Austrian economics, those are the, the public practitioners in the in the those are the famous ones. It's essentially with a set a few ideas. Uh, one is a skepticism about aggregate economic data, uh, which is comes back to our earlier point about econometrics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a certain skepticism about the ability to use economic aggregates like, say, production, mm-hmm. manufacturing output. Mm-hmm. Manufacturing output is the attempt to sum up dozens and dozens and dozens of different airplanes with ball bearings. And right, right, to right. what extent are they similar? Well, they're all similar because they're all manufactured. Okay. But are they all going to respond in the same way to a change in interest rates, to a change – and the Austrian field says – Going in the direction of, of say, labor mm-hmm. as an economic variable, meaning all the different diverse kinds of things we humans contribute to economic output, is not always productive and often counterproductive. So there's a skepticism about the ability to use economic aggregates and in statistical ways. So they tend to be less empirical, mm-hmm. not otherworldly, but less statistically oriented. They are aware of emergence, the complexity of economic life. It certainly was one of Hayek's most important uh, contributions that the curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they really know about what they imagine they can design. That you right. can't – close quote – that you can't just 
move things around and steer things uh, from the top down, that things have to emerge from the bottom up. A certain trusting of those processes, an understanding of their complexity, a worrying about unintended consequences. There's a distrust of mathematics, earlier point. Mm-hmm. So when I first uh, started working in George Mason in 2003 and was influenced by the, the many Austrian-oriented folk there, uh, you know, the joke was I was Chicago trained, but I was influenced by Austrian folks, so I was somewhere over the Atlantic Ocean in terms of my <laughs> – uh, econ- economist, methodological, and and uh, outlook. So, am I one? In some extent, I'm very sympathetic, obviously, to to that to those ideas, to the the Austrian ideas. I probably left out some. There's Austrian business cycle theory, which I'm not a big fan of, and I argue that Hayek wasn't a big fan of either. At the end of his life, at the beginning of his life, he was the, the most important Austrian business cycle guy. But I think by the end of his life, he became of the came of the view that. Business cycle theory was essentially impossible, and his Nobel Prize address, The uh, Pretense of Knowledge, which I recommend, is a phenomenal yeah. and accessible piece. Um, anybody is basically a, a skepticism toward thinking you could you could capture the macroeconomy through a set of equations statistically and mathematically. So I'm sympathetic to the Austrians. They're also – by the way, there's one other piece. They tend to be pretty free market. Mm-hmm, yeah. I'm pretty free market too. I, I, so, so in that sense, I, you know – my intellectual home is increasingly near Vienna rather than Chicago. Uh-huh. So, but I think you know, I, I I've become. I think if you listen to Econ Talk, you wouldn't say I changed so much over the last five to ten years. But I know inside I'm changing. I'm becoming a little more skeptical of the pat sort of ways that Austrians and Chicago folks look at 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 the economic world. So I'm I'm getting even a little more skeptical of. Of that, and so it's going to be interesting to see where where I end up. I'm not do, sure. Do I have this wrong, right? So there's also a difference between Hayek and von Mises, and that von Mises was much more Kantian, right? He was sort of categorical, while Hayek was much more empirical and ground up. I don't know. There. Empirical in economics tends to mean statistical. He's not statistical. Yeah. Um, uh, Mises has, you know, his his magnum opus, and it is a magnum opus, is Human Action, yeah. which I've never read in its entirety. I find it turgid. As is I've pros, tried. As is much of Hayek's prose. It's Hayek's not an easy read. If you're interested in Hayek, you should read The Fatal Conceit. The weird thing about Hayek, though, is that sometimes he is a great writer and yes. sometimes he's not. <laughs> Correct. And it depends what he's writing about. Yeah. Um, uh, so I don't I don't think they're that different. The, the other thing that they both – that they did together as part of what was called the calculation debate, economic calculation debate in the 30s and 40s, this debate about whether you could mimic the out outcomes of a capitalist free market society through government planning. The uh-huh. government could impose the prices and and Hayek and Mises argued together that that would be hard to do because the bureaucrats don't have the knowledge and the power of the marketplace. And this is Hayek's Use of Knowledge in Society paper, right. 1945, where American Economic, which is also pretty accessible. You can find that. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great essay. Amazing essay where it basically argues that what a dispersed set of prices do is allow the knowledge that's dispersed in our heads – not dispersed. I shouldn't say that for the prices that, – that uncontrolled prices, that market, prices that are free to adjust allow the accumulation of and coordination of knowledge that's dispersed through – the heads of individuals to come together in the output of, say, a pencil. Right. Uh, Leonard Reed's SAI pencil is an attempt to illustrate Hayek's point, 
which basically is that no one knows how to make a pencil. Thousands and thousands of people have to cooperate through their individual knowledge, and it somehow works really beautifully, and there's pencils available for sale all the time at reasonable prices, right. and that's a beautiful thing. And I forgot what we were talking You've about. You've seen the video of the guy who made a sandwich? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Sure. This is for listeners, we'll link to it, but a guy. I think it's 15, it takes him six months and it's 1500 $1, bucks. And it's an okay sandwich. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, a, and who knows how much labor costs went into it? Yeah. So it's, 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 I like to say self sufficiency is the road to poverty. Right. We, self sufficient means sort of stand on your own two feet, which is a good thing, but it also means not trading with others. That's a really not smart thing unless uh, you want to be poor, which yeah. is, because you will be. Because it's interesting as, as someone who, has grown up in the nerdy world of, of of ideological egghead fights between conservatives and libertarians in Washington, you almost never touch on that stuff on your show, and it's like you exist almost outside of... Yeah, I try to. I don't find it so interesting. I mean, there's a big... There's fights within Austrian economics between Hayekians and Misians, mm-hmm. and I find that embarrassing and not productive and my view is you know, I, I love it. there is a little people's front of judea versus judeans people yeah front. exactly <laughs> and i and and uh you know, i get people to write me and say things like well you know hayek was in favor of the safety net yeah and i say yeah so he's not god yeah he's not he didn't bring down his works from mount sinai there are things I agree with them and I don't agree. They're not they're not saints they're not to be worshipped adored they're to be learned from so I try to learn from you know, it says in uh, it says in the Talmud, who is wise? The person who learns from every person. And I, you know, I think there's a chance to learn from everybody. And if there, there are people you can't learn from, obviously, some people can't have, don't have anything to teach you. But I take from Mises what I learned from Mises. I take from Hayek what I learned from Hayek. I even take from Keynes what I learned from Keynes. It's not a religion. It shouldn't be a religion, but it acts like a religion. So I've tried to stay away from the religious fights between conservatives and libertarians and Hayekians and Misians and others, Chicago Friedmanians, um, <laughs> Kosians. But my question for you oh, yeah. is, which is right on point, is what do we disagree on? I mean, I would call myself a classical liberal or more of a libertarian. I think you would call yourself a conservative. Mm-hmm. Do we disagree on anything fundamentally? Oh, I bet you if we and my views on foreign policy are in flux, but yeah. I'm sure there was so time. Let's put those to the side. Yeah. Those to the side. I, I understand that's an important part of the conservative libertarian yeah. difference. But I, I have to concede in myself that I think there, I have a little more sympathy toward conservative ideas, cultural aspects of economic life that I think are more important than I probably gave credit to mm-hmm. 10, 20 years ago when I was more rapidly free market and libertarian than I am now. I sure. I'm sh- I assume with you, there are some economic policies that, as a conservative, maybe you're now more sympathetic to the libertarian aspects of them. But I didn't find much to disagree with in your book. Yeah. And I and 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 as I predicted, a lot of listeners are really mad at me because I didn't push back hard enough. <laughs> I mean, really mad. Uh, and I apologize to my listeners who are not listening now. But that was hard for me because I a lot of that book captures uh, the way I feel, which is. We have something really special here, and I see it slipping away called yeah. free markets and 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 democracy. And I understand our free markets aren't so free market. Our democracy is not so – it's got a lot of flaws, but we're, I'm worried we're going to go in a really bad direction. And so I was very sympathetic to the fundamental thrust of your book. But I'm, I wonder what there is outside of foreign policy and my views are there. They're also in flux. But I wonder outside of foreign policy and domestic policy – where we might disagree. Yeah, so... Uh, Marriage like, policy, maybe? Uh, uh, no, I mean, look, I mean, I was... I was in favor of 
what, what civil what do they call it uh, domestic pot contract whatever that was you know that was short of marriage but granted all the rights because because yeah. and for a long time <coughs> I held off on being in favor of the marriage part of it but what was funny was that when I was for domestic partner stuff the sort of the hardcore religious right people went nuts attacking me sure. And then over time, that became the right-wing position to have, you know. Correct. Um, and so I think I, – I certainly think that marriage is much bigger problems than gay marriage. I, yeah, by the way, I just want to put a footnote on that because I don't talk about cultural issues on my sure. show and I, you know, I get the chance to vent. The idea that, that gay marriage was a threat to marriage – is comical given that marriage is falling apart in America long before we leave right. gay marriage. I mean, we got real. We have a marriage problem in the United States. It's huge, uh, and it has nothing to do with nothing gay to dudes. Do with, yeah. yeah, and I, or, or I should say, homosexuals or lesbians, or whatever. Yeah. But, so you know, I, my opposition, and I remember I wrote it at the time. My opposition to rapidly, I was getting these arguments with Andrew Sullivan that I was sort of in favor of gay marriage, but I wanted to take it slow. Yeah. Because when you radically change an institution that is sort of central to our society, that's conservative. Yeah, no, there was, and I'm sympathetic. That's the conservative part of me too. And Jonathan Rauch was very sympathetic to yeah. it, right? And Jonathan Rauch is sort of a very conservative libertarian. Yeah, and um, uh, and also we should say he's gay and was a big yeah. champion of, of of gay rights and gay marriage. And so um, there was probably a time where our disagreements were more pointed on some of that. But um, I always thought it was kind of cruel to, as a matter of a society, to tell. You know, gay people, you're horrible because you're promiscuous and you have this weird lifestyle and we don't like it. Um, but by no stretch of imagination will we let you settle down and get married and right. live a bourgeois lifestyle. And, we're, and, we, and we, the heterosexual folks, are going to maintain our right to cheat on our spouses and um, be promiscuous. Right, yeah. So I, I thought it was a hot <laughs> mess, again, to use a phrase from social science. But let, let's, actually, let's, let's move away from this. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about, let's talk about Economic policy. Would you privatize the school system? So there's a there's a place where, if you could. So I would. I would get rid yeah, of all government. Oh, sure, sure. So, but here's part of the dilemma, right? You're catching me. There's a reason why this podcast is called The Remnant. It's a phrase that comes from Albert J. Nock, and it's this idea that there's, you know, that there's this irreducible number of people who sort of keep their heads about them. Maintain the faith. Yeah. And so right now, I mean, people ask me this all the time about conservatism. You know, what happens when conservatism becomes defined as... Trumpism, which it's perilously close. It's, to. It, you and a handful of other people are resisting. Have resisted it, <laughs> and I salute you. And you and I are on this. I think had the same arc on Twitter, which is mainly where I talked about it, and mainly where I read yeah. you. Which is this is not good for the Republican Party. And I would just add as a footnote, a, a moribund Republican Party is not good for the Democratic Party or the United States. It's a disaster. Right. Uh, competition is good. And I'm really worried about it. And I see Trump co-opting. I don't talk about Trump on my program. So again, I'm taking advantage of my opportunity here. <laughs> I don't. I don't see how your intellectual vision, which uh -huh. I think is crucial, is going to sustain itself beyond the Trump years, unless Trump, you know, is thrown out of office, impeached, whatever. Yeah, I I, I worry about it. You know, um, I think we're both skeptical about populism, tribalism, and nationalism. I think that's right. And so you're catching me at a moment where. First of all, I've become more libertarian over the years. I have this very serious philosophical argument with some of my colleagues at National Review who I think are the ones I'm having in mind about who are in favor of nationalism as a sort of unifying one country kind of thing, uh, like my, my colleague Rich Lowry. I have some profound disagreements with them about it, but they're, I, I know where they're coming from in this and it is not 
sort of blood and soil nationalism. That's not what they've got in mind. It's not ethno-nationalism. But one of the things that I learned or I persuaded myself from writing my first book um, and then I really, while I'm working on this, became convinced of it, is that you can't have nationalism, almost however defined, as a def- as the signature defining feature of your politics because at the end of the day, the only institution that can claim to represent the whole nation is the federal government. Yeah. And so over time, Not a conservative viewpoint. that rationalization leads to planning, leads to statism, because it has to, because the government is the one that's going to be the expression of the people, right, yeah. quote unquote. And so that stuff makes me very nervous. I think that on the, I mean, the stuff I have the most problem with with, with Trump on a policy front is the is the economics yep. stuff, the trade and all that. But I would also throw in his seeming, you can debate how much there is, his, his view of migrants, his view of the other. It's just, it, it's a dark, it appeals to a dark side of human beings. I, I agree with that. And I understand that there are things to be worried about potentially in that realm, which I, I'm not going to try to make explicit. But I think... I think appealing to that side of us is 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 again corrosive, deeply corrosive. I, I agree with that, and it's also, um, you know, I get in this argument with people. Every president has used populism, you know, and that's true as a political matter. Populism is always, but but if you look at Reagan's populism, which was open-hearted and grateful and talked to, and was pro-immigrant, uh, there are different form, populism can take different yeah, forms, just like nationalism, just like nationalism no. can, and so uh, I. But you asked me about would I privatize all the schools. I certainly think that would be better than what we've got now to a certain extent. At the same time, I'm probably more skeptical about oh, – I don't know this, but I would I guess I'm more skeptical about how that will solve the problems. You know, one of the points that I talk about a lot these days, you know, I keep hammering this new class point and all this kind of stuff, right? I meet conservatives all over the place who think public school choice will solve the problems of what teachers teach. I have school choice right now. I send my kid to a very expensive private school in, in Northern Virginia, and all my friends, not all my friends, but most of my friends, because we live in D.C., and the public schools here aren't very good, we send our kids to various private schools or parochial schools or whatnot, and they still get taught stuff that drives me crazy, right? Strangely enough, yeah. And, you know, in, in higher education, the top 50 schools, um, which is what everyone wants to get into. They're all incredibly expensive. There's essentially school choice there. I mean, it's Oh, for sure. Right? No, I agree. And they teach a lot of garbage. Yes, they do. And so the idea that privatizing the public schools will solve, I think, some of the more fundamental problems I'm, I'm kind of skeptical of. Interesting. But, you know, crushing – I mean, I, I, I truly, truly believe in a sort of Old Testament smiting and wrath kind of way about crushing public sector unions. <laughs> um, I think that they are a true conspiracy against the public. And I get if I were a – you know. I get private sector unions, right? I mean, like if I were a coal miner in 1910, I'd want a union. And and we believe in contracts. We believe, you know, and so I, I get, I'm, I'm much more sympathetic to private sector unions, in part because private sector unions understand that you need a private sector to have the union. But but where was the great Department of Motor Vehicles ceiling collapse of 1973 that justifies, you know, public sector unions? And I, I just don't get it. FDR was against public sector unions, and and you get this very sclerotic, very Mansur Olson kind of problem where you have this coalition instinct thing with these public sector unions that put politicians in office, who then in turn promise these unions things 
that the public cannot afford that the politician will not be held accountable for because the bill won't come due in 10 or 20 years. And I think it's a really pernicious, pernicious problem. But I don't think that's where we disagree. <laughs> I mean, maybe yeah. – No, we don't disagree on that. I don't mean. So I don't, I don't know where else. I mean, I, I – But that's an interesting example. I think the point about schools is important. Would you get rid of the minimum wage? Yes, absolutely. I would um, – Licensing? I'm very much against licensing. I mean, there are places where – you might have a doctor license. Yeah, that kind of stuff. I right? wouldn't, but that's okay. But, but that's just me talking. It's easy to – it's cheap talk. Uh, oh, I, I, one place we probably really probably profoundly disagree is on drug legalization. I'm in favor of it. Yeah, and I'm really not. Okay. Um, I, uh, that's a non-libertarian party. Yeah, in part because – and I'll just give you my – I talked about this a lot with Megan McArdle. You know, so in just full disclosure, my brother was a, had a drug – was a drug addict and he died about seven, yeah. eight years ago. Sorry. And thank you. And I remember that. Part of the – I've been debating drug legalization for a long time. So part of the libertarian argument for drug legalization is we're all rational actors. People are free to make their own decisions and all the rest. If you've lived with some – and I'm not trying to pull this appeal of my own personal experience as an authority on this. But if you've known people and most people now know people who've had drug addiction problems, the idea they're that not they're still rational actors, I think, is insane. I agree. And so weed is one thing. Again, I would have, on hayacking grounds or burking grounds, liked to do it slower than we've been doing it. But uh, the idea that you – know, so David Bowes, I assume you know, right? sure. Vice President of Cato Institute, in his book on libertarianism, he says, wouldn't it be great if um, we could get rid of the violence and the, 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 the bad, you know, the corrupted drug products – if corporations could market clean, you know, uh, good drugs, and I think Using brand name rather than a guy on the street corner. Who yeah, so like, you go into the supermarket, you yeah. pick up your heroin, yeah. and um, I don't think that would be better. I don't think. I mean, you're talking about before we we're talking about shame and and social opprobrium and all these things and how they matter. If all of a sudden we get during the Super Bowl as many ads for, you know, the Ramjack Corporation's heroin that we now see for Viagra. I don't think that makes the, this a better world. And I think one of the things that a lot of people don't under don't appreciate is that if you legalize if you legalize hard narcotics, again, I'm not talking about weed, you'll have more drug addicts. You just will. I mean, whether it's a little more drug addicts or a lot more drug addicts, I don't know, and nobody and nobody else does. But but we'd have fewer people in prison. We would. We'd have more honest police departments. Yeah. And the reason I disagree with you, by the way, the only really important reason I disagree with you is I think it's really important that our culture honor human agency and choice and freedom. I get and, that. And the idea that the state's going to tell me what's good for me. I understand that I don't always know what's good for me. I don't want the state to tell me. I want I want my family to tell me. I want my rabbi to tell me. I want my friend to tell me. And – I think the addiction problem, it's a big problem right now. Yeah. It's not drugs. It's internet. It's sex. It's money. It's we're all, We've all got it. Yeah. We've got to find ways to fight it. And I think using the police department is not a very effective way. I think I'm sure you agree with that. Yeah. Are, there, are there huge problems with the drug war? Absolutely. Yeah. No, I understand. I'm not yeah. – yeah, I'm not – that's not my point. I just think – I think it's really important that we don't see the state as our parent. Oh, I agree with that. And I think that is – we think about the – come full circle now. We think about the the most pernicious part of the progressive movement is the idea that experts know better for me than I know for myself. 
Of course, it's sometimes true. Mm -hmm. I, I concede that. But I think that's a bad way to go for humanity. Uh, so I think we're talking about two evils. <laughs> yeah. They each have their own. You know, I don't disagree with you. I think we would get more addicts than it's horrible. I, and I just, I mean, my only response to that would be. And I don't want my kid to be one of them, by the way. I don't, I don't want to say, oh, I want my kid to be free to make their choices. I want right. there to be somebody on the street corner for my 14-year-old or 16-year-old to try X, Y, or Z. And the answer is, of course, I don't. Right. And the only thing I would say is, again, like before, because we're going full circle, you were talking about how this this trade-off between doing everything case by case versus having rules, right? Yeah. I just view heroin and, you know, meth, right? Uh, um, or these things that are profoundly addictive to a subset of the population to be one of these places where I'm with you that we should let people govern their own lives on cases A through Y. <laughs> and then I'm like, well, but heroin, that's kind of like Z for okay. me, right? And... And I'm perfectly happy to acknowledge, happy is probably the wrong word, the, the externality. That there's cost. Social cost. There's cost, yeah. Another place we might disagree is on um, the ideal immigration regimen. Are you, are you a – I don't mean in a pejorative way, but are you an open border? More or less. I think, I think the, the problem with that debate, with the debate right now over it is you know, Milton Friedman famously said you can't have a welfare state and open borders. That's true to some extent. So I want to give up one. I want to give up the welfare mm -hmm, state. Mm -hmm. So join me there. Let's well, have more open borders and let's make it harder for people to live off the state and off each other uh, to find that as an attractive reason for coming here. I think um, the reason I'm sympathetic – you know, I, I don't know if listeners heard this, but I, I did make some sympathetic noises to anti-immigration earlier when, mm -hmm. when I mentioned it. And that's because a lot of the things that made America a great place – to allow immigration in the 19th century, in the early part of the 20th century, we've lost. Right. We, we let people come here and speak their own language. We don't right. make – we make it easy for them. We shouldn't. We should make it hard for them. Yeah. There shouldn't be multilingual signs. If a business wants to put up a multilingual sign, right. fine. For the state to put up a multilingual sign is nuts. Right. Makes no sense for me what's, to me whatsoever. Yeah. It should be hard to come here. And I thought you did Unless a you want to join the club. Right. And the club is – we speak English right. and we're American. Right. If you don't want to do that, don't come here. Right. Great. But, but the, otherwise – And at the very least, the, the government shouldn't be standing in the way of the civil society institutions that turn people into America. Yeah, I, I right. don't get that. That, yeah. that part – and I think that's a I, – I think that part is a – I guess it's the internationalist bent. It's mm -hmm. the anti-nationalist part of some – people, particularly on the left, to... Globalists. Yeah, glo glo I'm a globalist <laughs> in a certain dimension, but the idea that somehow everybody should be free to embrace their own non-national identity, non-American, I just don't think that's a good strategy, and we're reaping the, tragically, we're reaping some of the the results of that, I think. Yeah. It's, I, I thought you did a great episode with, with Borjas on... Um, his book, we wanted work. We only wanted workers, or whatever. Yeah, I think it's we wanted workers. Yeah, and of course, we got things beyond just foreign people who work here. We got we a got change people. in American culture, which is phenomenal. Most yeah. of it, I love it. I, I embrace it. I think it's great. I, you know, I, I recently it hasn't aired yet, but I recently talked about it with a guest. Someone said, oh, "I know why you're in favor of immigration. It's because you benefit from it. You live in a big city, and you like." So I think food. <laughs> no, I think it's desperately important that poor people from other cultures have a chance to thrive here and have make decent lives for the children. And and if it weren't for 
the open borders of the United States, I wouldn't be alive. I wouldn't exist. My parents, right. not my parents, my great-grandparents came here from Eastern Europe. They'd all been murdered by the Nazis. I'm glad we got to be here instead. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a hugely good thing for most of the world. I understand that it has cultural costs if you don't keep the melting pot. Melting. Melting. Yeah. It's, so it's funny. I mean, like I, I've said this a bunch of times on this podcast, but when um, my standard answer when people ask me what my preferred immigration policy is, my standard answer is to say to have one. Yeah, there you go. Right. And good point. And because a lot of people feel ripped off because they're told that this is our policy and then that's not enforced and they feel and this is one of the things that leads to things like Trump. And but the thing that drives me nuts about what's happening on the right these days is forget what the policy should be for a second. The immigration story should be our story, right? It's everybody's story. Yeah. They're Native Americans. I mean, and God bless them. They had suffered through other stuff. But almost everyone here, by definition, who's right. not Native American, is an immigrant. Right. Or descended from one. No, yeah. But, the, but my point is, so I'm going to give you an example because I know you'll find this interesting. My father-in-law, literally, not figuratively, swam the Danube to escape the communists, spent a year in a refugee camp, finished high school in Germany, then moved to the United States for college, went to the University of Colorado, where he met his wife. He transferred to the University of Chicago and got a master's degree from Milton Friedman. And and then there was an offer of a teaching job in Fairbanks, Alaska. So he gets in the car with his pregnant wife and three or four kids and drives to Fairbanks. At, and back then, I think statehood maybe had just happened, was just about to happen. Most of the drive was unpaved. <laughs> gets there. The job is gone. He becomes a, feeling that was coming. a milkman uh, for a grocery store, sort of sweeping up at night. Ends up buying out the grocery store, opening another grocery store. Ends up owning a chain of, of supermarkets in Fairbanks, Alaska. And that's great stuff. Yeah. You know, and um, the God bless him. that kind of story, you know, when Marco Rubio in 2012 was speaking at the Republican convention, the same people who were screaming bloody murder about how no amnesty and against comprehensive immigration reform were openly weeping when Marco Rubio was talking about his dad being a bartender and coming here with nothing and all that. And now you have this situation where, you know, this year at CPAC, there was a guy on a panel who said... Uh, you know, I lived in Mexico for five years, and some of those people had really conservative values, and they were great people. He gets booed. He then says, uh, you know, I happened to be at a swearing-in ceremony at a courthouse once. I stumbled on it. And I have to say it was absolutely beautiful to see these people saying how much they want to be Americans and, and becoming Americans. I just thought it was really beautiful. Gets booed. He then says, hey, you know, the Democrats have tables out front where they try to sign these people up to join the Democratic Party. It'd be really smart if Republicans did the same thing. Loud, sustained booing. The insanity of that. Forget the immorality of it. Because now these people are just freaking Americans. You You should want them in your party. And so much of the right now is just doubling and tripling down on this losing strategy of just churning out the white Christian vote and saying that we just don't want to be a party that embraces different people or, and all that kind of stuff. And it's it, to be a short run strategy. I don't say the long run. It's long run suicidal. And I just don't, I don't get it. Well, um, Trump delays the day of reckoning because most of us incorrectly, stupidly with bad judgment said it was going to be hard to get a Republican president 
because there just aren't enough white people anymore. That's right. And Trump showed he could do it. Yeah. Uh, we'll see if he could do it again and again. But I don't understand the unwillingness of the Republican Party to embrace people who are a little bit different. It seems like a mistake. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know a lot about politics, but one of the things – it seems obvious to me is it's hard to get people to vote for you if you don't ask them to vote for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And um, but, you know, it's an economic matter. Right. This is one of these classic examples of. Of overreading data, because basically, if if about, I don't know, 50,000 votes in five counties had gone the other way. Right. He wouldn't have won. Correct. And he already lost the popular vote. Right. Yep. So it's funny. I, well, well, I guess we can close on this. One of my favorite cartoons that. um I think you posted on Twitter, but I know you also talked about on the podcast has this guy saying, they told me to give up. They told me to stop trying that. But I said, no, I'm going to rely on my I'm going with my gut. I know I can do this. And I kept buying those lottery tickets. <laughs> you know, right. And, and you do you, you to talk about winner's bias. Right. Yeah, but, sure. You know, and you've had that a couple of these conversations about guys outperforming the Nasdaq or the yeah. Dow Jones, or whatever. Donald Trump is one of these rare, crazy rich people who actually is is almost statistical noise in a sense because I, I know the really rich guy who once told me, look, integrity lowers the price of capital. You know, if you yeah. behave honorably, people are more in, interested in dealing with you and yep. lending you money and all the rest. There's a reason why Donald Trump had to raise money in really in foreign markets because no one would lend to him here in the United States. He is modeled behavior that normally you can't get rich from, but it worked for him. Yes. And that, and so that's one of the things that scares me about him in the White House is when people tell him, oh, you can't do it this way. A 71 year old who manages to become a billionaire and, or allegedly a billionaire and the president <laughs> of the United States, how, it's pretty difficult to tell him, oh, you don't know what you're doing or you shouldn't rely on your instincts. He's the guy who kept buying the lottery tickets. Yeah. Right. Right. So he's, he's, Hubris levels are off the charts. Right. He thinks he's an expert on everything. And I, by the way, I'm happy to concede that he's done some good things. He's done some great things. Many of the things he does may accidentally turn out to be very fortuitous for the United States. I don't think he's a um, unmitigated disaster, is the way, which is, of course, the way many people are viewing him. He reminds me a lot of Nixon in terms of his public persona, which yeah. I, I'm older than you. I remember the Nixon presidency pretty well. And he was, you know, nobody on the left or in the Democratic Party thought, hey, it's an okay, it's some pluses and minuses. He was just evil. And yeah. I think we're heading in that direction. And I, with we're there with Trump, as witnessed the recent White House dinner, correspondence dinner. I, I, we talked a little bit about this when you were on Econ Talk. It's going to be really interesting to see what 2020 looks like as a, or 2024, if there's a, uh, still a Trump presidency in 2020, and he's running for re-election. This changes the political calculus for a lot. A lot he's not the only person who thinks uh, he's a genius because when he's all he's really doing is kept buying lottery tickets. There are a lot of people who are going to mimic this strategy. And I have to say that for a long, long time, I thought that an anti-politician w- could make it into the White House. This isn't what I had in mind. No, me too. I I was ready for a authentic, non-spinning, non-poll-driven person to to 
break out of the mold and not be an establishment character. Sort of a Ross Perot-y kind of guy. Yeah, although I thought Ross Perot was a disaster for yeah. different reasons. Yeah. But someone like that, we saw the appeal of it there yeah. with Ross Perot. But the idea that someone, even within a party, even a traditional party person, uh, Republican or Democrat, could thrive by by just breaking the rules and and being different. Yeah, this was beyond my wildest dreams or nightmares. That that we'd get a person who is shameless is the way I would describe it. And and if that's going to be the mode of politics going forward, it's going to be a really interesting and bumpy ride. I think. Yeah, and this is one of those things that I you know as I say in the book. I, Trump didn't cause a lot of these problems. He's a symptom of. No, I view him. Yeah, people like to blame him for it. I just think he helped us see under the rock. And yeah, it's it's and, all coming loose. But it's this catalytic thing, right? So I think Democrats are poised to make some monstrous mistakes in overplaying their hand as a react. It's yeah. a dialectic thing, yeah. right? And um, you know, I keep joking that when I tell people, you know, look. Donald Trump isn't Hitler. Hitler could have repealed Obamacare. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And, and and they don't understand that comparing him to Hitler is not productive. It does uh, get your side all fired up. And it, ju- it justifies your side to do things, things that they are really should not, not do. good. Yeah, no, I think the inability to make those kind of distinctions is really, really unhealthy. It's, it's part of our current political discourse on both sides of the political fence because Hillary was Hitler for the mm-hmm. Republicans and I, I I have sweet kind friends who hate her with a passion I just can't understand I don't I didn't vote for her I yeah. didn't vote for Trump either I didn't like her I wouldn't have been happy about I'm sure there are many things about a Clinton presidency I wouldn't have liked but she's more conservative than Obama <laughs> yeah in my view on many dimensions and I, but the visceral dislike of her it, and the unawareness of people in that dislike, is again a symptom of something going on in our body politic that's not healthy. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm this is another place where I mean, I don't have a visceral hatred of Hillary, and I would love to just stop talking about her. Yeah, <laughs> but <laughs> I, probably, I probably dislike her more than you dislike her. But you know, be that as it may. Anyway, I, we have gone very long. I think we might even break this into two parts. But I really want to thank you for coming all the way down here and doing this. This has been uh, a real treat for me, as you know, as as. It, as I explained at the beginning of your um, the podcast that we did for Econ Talk, I felt obliged to actually mention Econ Talk in the acknowledgments in my book because I, I I ran off in so many different directions and bought books from people of the people who were on the show. Immense... I think you read them also. I read a lot of them. <laughs> I, I read the parts I needed to read for sure. Um, and I really I've, I've gotten so much out of it. And I kind of felt like I got to know you and um, and. Thank you very much for coming in. It was a blast. Thanks, Sharon. Sure. Okay, listeners of the future. Uh, (laughs) This just feels really weird because uh, we broke this up into two things, and I feel like I'm talking to you guys like a week ahead of time, which just feels different than yeah, normal. Is there anyone? Do we have any sort of uh, Doc Brown uh, messages to tell people? Like, wear wear a bulletproof vest when the Libyans come. I just feel like you know when the time people listen to this podcast, it's going to be super intelligent apes <laughs> <laughs> um, who are like 
trying to figure out this ancient civilization, you know. Um, anyway, thank you again to Russ Roberts. Thanks, thanks to him for coming in. I thought it was a lot of fun. I, there are some things I would love to geek out more on with him, but I think we got a lot of geeking out done. Is there anything? You did. Is, is, is there <laughs> anything that you wish I had asked him about? Um, no, it was long enough. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So anyway, uh, thanks to Russ. Thanks to all you guys. Um, we will figure out what the next podcast is about from the road. Send email to theremnantpod at gmail.com, at Jonah Remnant on Twitter. If you say nice things about us or interesting things or have interesting feedback about the nice things that you like to say about us, odds are that we will retweet it or respond to it. And Since that seems to mean so much to so many of you. <laughs> um, let's not have any disdain. These are our people. I uh, I did not mean to uh, insert disdain into my voice. I guess I just have that. You do. You have a monosyllabic problem. <laughs> um, actually, a monotone problem, I should say. You have many syllables, but you have one tone. Well, maybe I should change my no, tone. No, stop, stop, stop. That makes me feel unsafe. <laughs> so, um, not the first time that's been said about me. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, thanks everybody for listening. Please keep the reviews on iTunes coming. Uh, if you haven't bought the book yet, please do. If you're starting to really like the sound of my voice, you could even buy the Audible version, which I recorded myself, which was a enormous amount of work. And uh, thanks for listening, and, and we'll see you next week. No, you won't. This is a podcast. <laughs>